I'm Kate Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. While I've been lucky enough to explore glaciers, most never will, or even see one in person for that matter. So it's really no wonder we often don't bat an eyelash when we hear that a huge chunk of ice has fallen off some faraway glacier, or that some glacier is melting faster than scientists expected. But you should care. You should care a lot. And not just because glaciers are a canary in the coal mine of climate change. What happens to glaciers halfway around the world has a direct impact on your weather right here in the U.S. I recently got to chat with Dr. Ted Scambos, senior research scientist at the Earth Science Observation Center. He explained how changes to glaciers halfway around the world could determine whether we are able to feed ourselves in the future. Ted, I'm so glad to be talking to you about the topic of our polar regions and the cold and our glaciers and our ice. But I kind of want to start right off the bat with a more philosophical question. Why okay. should we care about ice in the Arctic and Antarctic? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, both places have a major impact and will likely have an even bigger impact on uh, weather and also sea level um, in the future. I think for the Arctic, the big concern is that by losing the ice that's on the ocean, up covering the Arctic Ocean, will change uh, weather patterns across the northern hemisphere so that right where most people live, uh, there'll be a difference and probably a noticeable difference in oh, um, the pace of storms, the uh, path that they take, um, duration of uh, certain weather events, and uh, um, just in general, a slow onset to some of the winter weather that we're used to getting. Um, the Arctic has changed dramatically in the last few decades already. Some people think that these effects are already noticeable. Um, things like a more sinuous jet stream, a meandering jet stream that brings odd weather for extended periods to places. It's almost sure to happen in the future, and it may already be happening. The ice sheets, like Greenland and Antarctica, they hold a huge amount of water, and enough to change sea level dramatically. And they've done it in the past. Back in the last ice age and at the end of ice ages, sea level changed by several tens of meters. Now, because of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we're pushing on a climate that was already pretty warm, but still had a couple of ice sheets left. And the ice sheets are shrinking as a result. If they really go after it the way they did at the end of the last ice age, we would see some very dramatic changes in a fairly short period of time. Short in terms of how cities like to plan for changes in infrastructure or building sea defenses so that they can keep operating. So you mentioned the coming out of this last ice age and, you know, the changes that we've seen in the, in the you know, the melting of the ice. But there's a human component to this as well. It's not just all happening naturally. Oh, absolutely. Well, as I said, greenhouse gases are the thing that are pushing on climate right now and taking it to this warmer level. There have been tiny um, wiggles in climate since the last ice age completely ended, oh, about 10,000 years ago. But, but now we've begun to push on the climate um, in a new way by changing the atmosphere. In the past, 
um, things having to do with the Earth's orbit and the tilt of the axis. Those were the things that were changing that triggered an ice age very slowly over a thousand years or so. Now, and the atmosphere changed as well, as Al Gore liked to point out. Uh, but it was actually a follow-on effect and an amplifying effect, not the leading cause. What's happening now is that we're putting gases that trap heat directly into the atmosphere, and we're leading with that warmer atmosphere, uh, which in turn is warming the ocean. So we're cranking on climate in a way that isn't like the ways climate has changed in the recent past, and it's pushing climate warmer. Not only that, but Although we already noticed that it's warmer, greenhouse gases, if we left them the way they are, they're not done warming the planet because all of that heat has to work through the entire surface system of oceans and atmosphere and, and even the land warms up slowly. That's why we're seeing so much dramatic change in the polar regions and dramatic changes in ocean temperature and ocean acidification as well. Um, all because we're, we're adding gases to the atmosphere. Um, if you want me to go on, I can about exactly how <laughs> we're, we know that it's greenhouse gases and that we're doing it, but let me stop there and see if we're on track still. Yeah, yeah, totally still on track. And in fact, I, um, I wanna talk a little bit more about the Arctic and then I really wanna focus on the Antarctic because I know you have some stuff going on there, but the Arctic, I was, I was fortunate enough last year to visit Greenland. And I was able to go make it out to Summit Station, which is, you know, the highest elevation on the ice sheet in Greenland, and see the 1992 borehole where the, you know, oh, the location yeah. of this massive um, sample of our of our ice going dating back right. hundreds of thousands of years. It was just uh, a really cool experience for me personally. But while we were there we were supposed to be out on the ice every day and landing and then coming back to Kangarlusawak where the air base is. But mm -hmm. it was so warm, we couldn't get out there. The snow and the ice was going to be too heavy for the planes, Sorry, which seems like Summit a trend. station, it was too warm. That's what you're saying. Yes. At the, the at whole summer, it was ice too warm sheet. to go out there. Yeah. It was too yeah, warm. That's impressive. It, and that was this last summer. So uh, I think I know, well, I could look it up, but I remember that there were a couple of record warm temperatures this past summer. We tracked that uh, at Ceres at University of Colorado on a daily basis. There's a group here called the National Snow and Ice Data Center, it provides a great website that tracks this on a daily basis, both sea ice and, and warmer temperatures in Greenland. We focus on the summers because that's when most of the action is. But uh, yeah, there were some exceptional events uh, in the summit area this year. It really is remarkable. But what about these ice cores? What do they tell us? I mean, is that what the area that you work in, in investigating the information that our ice contains and tells us about uh, past climate? I know quite a bit about the ice cores because they were sort of a um, fundamental contribution to what we know about the ice sheets and about the history of the ice sheets. The work that I do myself mostly has to do with mapping the ice sheets, observing how they're changing from a number of satellite uh, uh, sensors. What happened with those ice cores? They really revolutionized our understanding of climate, especially recent climate, because for quite a long section of those ice cores, we could go through year by year and say that layer right there, that was 4,221 years ago. And that's what weather was like that year across the Northern Hemisphere. 
it is incredible, and it really provided a tremendous amount of insight into how stable things have been, by and large, for the, mo for the past 10,000 years, the scale of the changes that were occurring as we came out of the last ice age, and even a bit of a window into the previous warm period and the ice uh, before that, although we're still searching for the best record of that. We think it's up there somewhere in Greenland, but the record that we got out of that core for the past warm period and the past ice age before this last pair is a little bit garbled under that ice core, and we're still looking for a better record. Still, all evidence points to us surpassing the past warm periods, either now or in the very near future, again, because we're pushing on climate with these gases that have been added into the atmosphere uh, through mostly through the use of fossil fuels. So we we're talking a lot about Greenland and, and the Arctic where we, you know, have this, and I have to tell you, my, when we flew out over the ice sheet and you kind of see the mountains around the outside of Greenland disappear beneath the ice, you know, you have these fingers of these glaciers that kind of come down the fjords yeah. and then all of a sudden it's just the ice. That was uh, kind of an uh, aha moment for me to really understand just how much ice there really was miles of yes. it beneath that it was it yeah. just was it's you have mind you expanding do have to see it makes such a difference uh, if you're an earth scientist uh, if you're a scientist interested in the polar regions if you're a scientist interested in geology in general to really go to some of the great field sites and and experience them firsthand it, so much more of your understanding gets integrated into a very visceral, physical sort of a grasping of what's going on. And you begin to, to, to put pieces together in different ways. Best earth scientists, best ice scientists are the ones that have been to the most places. And uh, doing that, seeing stuff, seeing how it works, being there for a week and seeing some section of the annual cycle play out in front of your eyes, that that really makes a big difference to one's understanding. Anyway, and so now, now you get it. So put. you're ready to ready to be an ice scientist. I'm. I am. I am. <laughs> I I find it fascinating. I always have, but it really was one of those moments where I felt like my, not exactly what you're saying. I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head. My brain expanded in just this tremendous way, seeing and feeling it um, tangibly. But someplace I haven't been is the Antarctic. And I I know that, you know, Greenland, we got a whole lot of ice. Antarctica, we have a whole lot of ice. Dwarfs if, Greenland by comparison. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it is uh, actually hard to grasp. Uh, it's an entire continent. You can think of it like Australia and Indonesia but both of those places covered with a mile to two miles of ice from coast to coast. And I say Indonesia because part of Antarctica, if you took all the ice away, would be a cluster of islands with deep troughs in between. And that's sort of like Indonesia. For scale, maybe a more familiar scale, it's about the size of the entire United States, including Alaska, plus Mexico. That's the continent of Antarctica. A couple of miles of ice on top of it. Now, only uh, a part of that ice is really at risk with anything like the current rates of warming for the next century or so. Even so, I would say that the amount of ice at risk is enough if you added all the areas that are likely to respond, probably four or five meters of sea level rise. And the one that we're focused whoa. on right now 
is a place called West Antarctica. It's in the Western Hemisphere because East and West are a little funny around Antarctica. Uh, but the Western Hemisphere part of Antarctica does appear to be particularly unstable. And it does look as though it probably responded in a big way the last time the Earth was as warm as it is today. And, and we're getting warmer. So, so eventually we're expecting that the West Antarctic ice sheet would flow into the sea and raise sea level. And the, the real question is how much of it is going to flow into the sea and how fast will it happen? Because both of those things yeah. are a big, big deal for, for city planning and all of the coastal infrastructure and vacation homes and all, all the places where people live around the world. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S. alone, the vast majority of our population lives in counties that touch the coast. Um, if you, I mean, if you break it up, it's, well, it's maybe more about 50%, but still it's a, it's a huge chunk there. Now, if you were a medical doctor and you were diagnosing the health of Antarctica, how would you, what kind of, you know, prognosis would you give them? Patient has a severe cold and needs treatment immediately to avoid further complications in the future. Yeah. Uh, I hate to use words like gangrene setting in, but there are places that are not going to be there uh, in the next several decades if, if we don't start to take action. And in fact, leaving behind the medical reference, the, um, there's a lot that's likely to happen anyway. I don't want to make it a lost cause, but we still have the ability to put the brakes on for both Greenland and Antarctica in terms of how rapidly they're changing. Yeah, this this one area that I've been talking about, both the peninsula, which sits south of South America, and then the Western Hemisphere of Antarctica, which is south of that, looks to be changing, responding in a big way to a warming trend uh, that started about 30 or 40 years ago. And it's directly attributable to global warming, the warming of the Pacific Ocean in particular, and that that's attributable to greenhouse gases. Let's pause here for a moment because it looks like those greenhouse gases could be causing record warmth in Antarctica. The high temperature record for Antarctica was broken in February with a temp of nearly 65 degrees Fahrenheit in Antarctica. And it was just one of many hot temperatures recorded this month. The Northwest Peninsula, where the temperature was recorded, is one of the fastest warming spots on the continent. It's 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than just 50 years ago. The record high temperature is a weather event, not necessarily climate driven, but the question scientists will now try to answer is if we can expect to see more of these record warm events in the future too. Now let's get back to my chat with Dr. Ted Scambos because it's not too late to save our glaciers, but as Dr. Scambos is about to explain, there's no time to waste. So we have the ability to put the brakes on a little, uh, yet there's a lot that's going to occur anyway because we've trapped so much heat in the ocean and that's gonna work its way through wherever the ice touches the ocean there's going to be a big response from the ice because even a few degrees above the normal temperature, that means that the ocean is carrying a lot of heat against that mm -hmm. ice. So, you know, ice cubes in your glass, they melt fairly quickly, even though the water is very cold in the, in the glass. It doesn't it's take long for it to consume the ice. It's interesting that you bring up the ice cubes because this is something that, you know, 
when I'm speaking with the public or I'm trying to describe why um, our melting ice is a problem and how it contributes to sea level rise, I think that a lot of what is pictured is sea ice specifically in their head, icebergs, right? And so they say, well, when I have a glass of water and my ice melts, the level goes down. But we are talking also about land ice, but yeah. I do want to the, mention the level sea should stay ice. the same, but they might get thirsty while they're waiting and take a sip. <laughs> the, um, the, but, the, the big difference, you're right, is that sea ice is a float, and so the ice cube is already in the glass, and the level doesn't change much. But if you go to the freezer, Greenland or Antarctica, and you take some ice cubes out and add those into the glass, then, of course, your glass is going to splash out over the top. And that's the difference. It's the ice that's above sea level on these pieces of continent that are going to flow into the ocean and, and displace more seawater. Uh, that's the part that leads to sea level rise. You don't have to wait for the ice cube to melt, as your analogy kind of shows. You, you just, once it's plopped into the ocean, it's already raised sea level. And so um, eventually it will melt, but it's already contributed uh, the extra volume to the ocean. So, and the sea, uh, le- the sea ice melting is a problem in of itself because of albedo. Snow has a very, and ice, they have a very high albedo. They reflect a lot of the solar radiation back I'm, into the earth. But I'm so glad well, you used the word albedo. Yeah, that's absolutely. <laughs> I am a meteorologist. But, well, uh, I know, but I mean, uh, I agree. And that's a word that, that I think the public needs to be aware of. The brightness of the surface right. of the whole of the earth is just a huge part of controlling the heat and the weather uh, in the Earth system. And if you if you picture yourself grabbing a hold of a globe and you look at the North Pole, uh, it's almost instinctive that you're imagining that that's going to be covered with snow or the ocean section, the Arctic Ocean, covered with ice. And that that fundamental aspect of how the Earth works is changing. Snow cover in springtime in the high latitudes, like in northern Canada and Alaska and Siberia, that's shrinking at a remarkable rate. So by May and June, it used to be mostly covered with snow in the far north, now mostly bare land. And that's much darker. The albedo is much lower for that kind of a surface. Needless to say, taking the ice layer off of the Arctic Ocean also reveals a much darker ocean. Both of those things lead to it absorbing a lot more solar energy, melting permafrost, which has its own knock-on effect, but makes the land warmer and warming the ocean, which is supposed to be ice covered and somewhat isolated from the atmosphere, makes the ocean warmer, makes the atmosphere warmer as a result. So so yes, you change that thin little cover of snow over across the Northern hemisphere, a thin little cover of ice and snow, you've made a huge impact on how much energy the earth is absorbing. And I think anybody who's been through high school chemistry can tell that is going to change the system if you start adding that much additional energy. What people think is either might be happening already, but will likely happen in the future, is that warming conditions and this reduction of ice will kind of weaken the fundamental gradient between a warm equator and a cold pole. If you make the pole warmer, then you reduce the driving energy that pushes all the winds around. What that leads to, Mm. most importantly for, for folks in the temperate latitudes like the US and Europe, is that the jet stream probably will wind up wandering more, get big loops in it, and maybe even those uh, separated uh, meanders or isolated loops uh, that you sometimes see in the weather forecast, big excursions of 
what's supposed to be south of the jet stream reaching far north, what's supposed to be north of the jet stream reaching far south, and bringing unusual weather. What's more is a meandering jet stream can get kind of hung up on things like the Rocky Mountains or Greenland itself, because these are big high objects that stick up into the atmosphere. So you can actually snag this wavering jet stream on those things on Earth and, and kind of hold it in position. And that leads to extreme conditions. It's been cold for a long, long time because the jet stream is in the same spot or warm or dry or wet. So we're in for, uh, the, 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 pardon me, but models seem to suggest that unusual weather or floppy jet stream funny business is likely something that we'll see more of in the coming decades. I, I kind of stepped on your the turf there, rise, but you right? tell me if that's not about like what you're thinking is, is 100%. the future. 100%. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that, that absolutely goes back to answering the question of why should I care about ice and these pictures of polar bears when in reality it, it is all just, it is, it is a, the earth climate system. It is all connected, our oceans and yeah. our land and our atmosphere. It's this beautiful, wonderful planet, but yeah. you know, changes in it cause problems. So I know you're yes, doing I'm, a I'm lot of- plenty concerned about walruses and polar bears, but really concerned about the growing uh, season for the, all of the bread baskets of the world. Those right. places have to have a reasonable climate or we have much bigger things to worry about. Like eating, yes, feeding the world <laughs> and our ever-growing population. Yes, it's challenging. So I know that you have really been focusing on the Thwaites Glacier. Yeah. What are you looking for there? What is? What are you hoping that this glacier is going to tell you? So let me give you a bit of background on the Thwaites Glacier. It's, a, it's an extremely large glacier. It's actually the widest glacier in the world. It's about 120 kilometers, about 80 miles wide, wide. It's the size of the island of Britain. It's also compared to the state of Florida. It's actually a little bigger than Florida. It's shaped a little bit more like the state of Idaho, but it's a little smaller than Idaho. Still, that gives you an idea. One glacier, state of Idaho, or the entire island of Britain, and it's been accelerating quite a bit. And the other problem is that Thwaites sits on top of some of these deep troughs that I mentioned before. Underneath the ice sheet, there are these deep areas, even though the ice is stacked up above sea level. So now Thwaites has begun to flow faster. If you remove the front ice from Thwaites, it actually retreats far back into this ice sheet and takes a lot of ice. It's thought that you might get a runaway situation where the ice will come out faster and faster once you begin this process. So what both the U.S. and the U.K. have decided to do is invest uh, a lot of money for an earth science project, about $50 million, on putting eight different teams out on the ice, uh, making measurements, setting up instruments, uh, measuring the ocean out in front of the glacier and the ice uh, that's still on Antarctica. Uh, the reason the ocean is so important is that the thing that appears to be driving the faster flow speed is that uh, warmer ocean water, in this case, is the main culprit, melting the deepest ice uh, in, pardon me, in Thwaites Glacier that's, that's reaching mm -hmm. the coastline. The surface is still fairly cool, even in summer, although we did have a few days above freezing this last uh, austral summer, December and January. Um, we got a little bit of melting, but mostly 
all year round, this ocean water that has two or three degrees above freezing, in other words, quite a bit of heat in it, is eroding the underside of this glacier and causing it to slip out faster than it has in the past. Because it's so large, and I want to tell everybody, I was out there standing on ice that's afloat in front of Thwaites Glacier, and on the horizon, about 20 miles away, I could see this glacier that uh, rose up in a hill in the distance to the rest of Antarctica. Well, I, I want to give you the scale. It's still 20 miles away from me, and yet as far as I can look to the left and as far as I can look to the right, it's one glacier flowing at us at about wow. a mile every year. And That's it's a lot. A only mile gotten a year? faster over the years. It, it was, like you said before, going there really crystallizes what you understand about a place. Absolutely. This thing is huge and it's accelerating uh, by quite a bit. And it has this geometric arrangement in terms of what's happening underneath the ice. Uh, that could cause it to flow out even faster if the first five or 10 kilometers of it were to disappear in the near future. And that's the question. How fast is this going to react to this warmer ocean water that's circulating underneath it? And also details about exactly how this is going to unfold fast or slow um, in the next uh, 100 years or so. That just sent chills up my spine. It's like a tick, <laughs> tick, tick, tick. <laughs> It's just this, it's a big this deal. countdown, and, and, it feels like. Think, That's uh, a lot of pressure. It's, it's serious in that people think, okay, we're in climate warming. Yes, the weather is not wonderful all the time, but it never was. Still, it does seem to be warmer. But are we really going to uncork a genie here and give ourselves some real trouble? Because day to day, I think most people think, okay, I get it. Planet's a little warmer, but it's not that tough to live through. Thwaites represents one of the genies that might come out of the bottle. And that's what we're trying to get our arms around right now in terms of an understanding and a forecast for what will happen next. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, the fate well, of humanity. Yeah. I, I don't want it to seem as though the 50 scientists that were out there are all like, you know, fear in their eye and working panic uh, all the time. It's a wonderful experience to be in Antarctica. And it's fun to be doing the research that you came there to do and, and having it be successful. But the underpinning of it is 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 really serious and something that I think um, bears watching. It's up to us to distill it down to things that are um, understandable, reasonable, and something that people and uh, society politics can react to. But uh, for now, I think the main message is we found an area and it's for real. It's it's big enough to affect the world's oceans. Well, when it comes to distilling it down, you are a champion of that because you have just explained all of these complex systems in an incredibly easy to understand way. But I have a question that I ask all of my guests. I don't want to leave us on a doomsday note. Do you have hope? Is there anything that you are seeing right now that is happening anywhere on the planet, politically or physically or otherwise, that is giving you hope? Yeah, no, I'm actually pretty optimistic. I'd mentioned that we still have uh, a way to put the brakes on. And from what I can see, we're well on the way to being able to do that. There's a lot of um, enthusiasm, actually, for doing that. And it's it's not just from the top down. And I think we saw that 
because even with the changes in administration, we've seen a steady increase from states and cities and other nations around the world and entrepreneurs, and that's the key, entrepreneurs interested in providing clean energy, selling things because they provide clean energy or because they're done in a low emissions kind of a way. That's key. Having it be an economic goal is the way to solve this issue because you take on the massive scale of the issue with something equally massive, which is all of that economic and entrepreneurial energy that's out there. If you put a challenge in front of people that they can make money by solving a particular problem, a million minds will turn their attention to solving that problem. And I think it's already begun. You see solar panels in a lot of places that you didn't see them before. Wind power is now actually the cheapest per watt in, in, in areas that are appropriate for wind power of any of the ways of generating power. Farther out, I think we're gonna see offshore wind become a big part of the solution. We may need uh, to consider nuclear energy that I know is a, a difficult thing for people to think about, but there may be ways to solve that problem uh, a little bit better this go round. And I think you're also gonna see a reduction in the use of the really worst offenders in terms of fossil fuels and a switch over to more hydrogen rich fuels like natural gas. Electric cars, I think, you know, the, the, every major car manufacturer is now looking at switching their fleet over to electric vehicles. This is huge. And all we have to do is keep pointing to the fact that this is a real problem and that the economy and the interest of the uh, uh, nation is going to, you know, um, be benefited by addressing the problem and people are going to go after it. It is going to take a generation to solve it. But, uh, but I think we're well on the way. Ted, thank you so much for all of your insight and for diving into all these topics with us. You're welcome. Uh, it, was, uh, it was fun to talk about and thanks a lot for having me on. Hey, thanks for joining me for this episode of Warming Signs. I would love for you to subscribe or shout out to me on Twitter. Some of you love to tell me what you thought about the episode, good or bad. Hey, I can take it. Let me know what you think. Subscribe, rate, all those fun things. Thank you, of course, as always, to our team that makes it happen here in the Weather Channel studios. Until next time.